The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. What, my son, and what son of my womb, and what son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Open your mouth for the speechless, in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will, not, he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. And now from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we conclude this study in the purposefulness for which you've created women, 
to be fruit bearers, to be a garden within the garden, as it was the case with Eve. We pray, Father, that we would embrace with a profound tenacity the purposes for which You have created each of us. That we would seek to be faithful, to honor those purposes, to give You glory in the midst of Your creation. Father, temptations are all about us to do otherwise. The devil and his minions, the world itself and the flesh, all conspire against faithfulness. And so, Father, we ask that Your Spirit would overtake our spirits to remind us of the goodness and the righteousness of Your revealed will and to love it like sweet honey from the honeycomb, like a refreshing drink from a cool stream. All those things that bless us that You've created, may Your revelation be that to us and more. And we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Brethren, today's lesson shall resume where we left off last week. And it will be the last in this series of lessons as we consider the purposes for which women were created and bring honor to God. Just this week, I was reminded of the etymology of Eve's name. Now, children, I've used a big word there, etymology. That means the, the understanding, the history behind the name. But I was reminded of that etymology of Eve uh, by one of our members, Heather. And this name was first used in Genesis 3.20, after the fall. We often think of Adam and Eve, but often we don't think about when the name was given. But God had just cursed the world, and Adam then gives his wife a name, the name Eve. And that name, that Hebrew name, Shabbat, means life. It means life. This, is, this name is first used, as I said, in Genesis 3.20, and this positioning in the Scripture is of particular importance. The giving of the name Eve immediately follows God's condemnation of the sins of Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, makes this short observation in a footnote. This is a footnote. The Hebrew word Shavah, Eve, is in the Septuagint rendered Zan, life. And as Phagias, a, 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 one who wrote a commentary on this passage, observes, Adam confronted himself... Uh, con- comforted himself and his wife because he should. Through Eve, she would produce a posterity in which, as parents and their children, they should be permanently victorious. Now he's referring to the promise of the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15, where God says, from the seed of the woman, I will crush the head of the serpent, though his heel will be bruised. The very name of Eve, as Adam gave that name to his wife, was a declaration to all mankind 
that the promised seed of the woman would live to crush the head of the serpent. Furthermore, death itself, though being visited on all creation by Adam's sin, would one day be overthrown with abundant life in Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman, and her name was life. The first mother of all creation, her name was life, and she was the prototype of all women to follow her, that they would be life givers as well. Well, it would appear that Adam was showing a form of repentance as he named his wife. He sinned against God. It's now time to either own that sin in repentance or to continue in the sin in defiance of God. Brethren, repentance is a humble acknowledgement of our sinning against God and turning from that sin. And here in Genesis 3.20, Adam is naming the most precious gift God had given to him with a name that honors God's provision and declares to all mankind that life is a covenanted blessing, a covenanted blessing from God, and it should be declared to the world. And he's declaring that as he names his own wife, Eve. Though Adam had sinned, he is now turning from that sin. And as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 30 last week, he is choosing life as he names his wife. So this brings us to our passage today. And I want to emphasize what God emphasizes to us as his design parameters given to women and described to us in the Scriptures. Encapsulated in Proverbs 31 and Psalm 127, we we see key descriptions of God's purposefulness in his design for godly women. I could have chosen other passages. Psalm 128, the very next psalm, could have been one of those passages. There there are several that could have been used. Uh, Some of the pedagogic examples of godly women in the Scriptures could have been used as well. But I've chosen these didactic portions because I think they're particularly salient for our purpose today. God's design parameters function around a simple concept that is throughout the Scripture, and that is fruit-bearing. Fruit-bearing. Godly women are to bear fruit. Godly men are too as well. But here, we have very particular didactic teachings with regard to that fruit-bearing. Now, God shows us the importance of this concept, fruit-bearing, throughout the Scriptures with great emphasis. At the outset of creation, God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's a, a cooperative effort. When the second Adam came, Jesus Christ, his declaration found in John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, as as we see the, the description of the vine and the branches, begins this way. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the concept of fruit-bearing begins in the garden 
and is reiterated in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in that passage. And there is another passage that I want to bring to your attention that's found in Matthew's Gospel because it bears directly on our consideration of women and their purposefulness for bearing fruit. That passage is found in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, therefore, he's speaking to the the chief priests and the Pharisees, therefore I say to you, I believe this is in chapter 21, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Jesus is saying this to the chief priests and the Pharisees. It's going to be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. The stone, the chief cornerstone of the church, Jesus Christ. If you fall on that stone, you will be broken. But on whomever it falls, if that stone falls on you, it will grind you to powder, Jesus said. So there's a very important stone that I'll read about when we get to the communion table. A very important stone that God has placed in history. It's a stumbling block to some. They stumble over it and they don't like it because it points out their sin. But for us who fall on it, knowing that we are sinners, when we fall on it, we are made whole and lifted up. It doesn't grind us to stone or powder. It strengthens us because we have broken ourselves over it. But if it were to fall on us, the Scriptures teach, it's, it's to fall on us like a mortar and a pestle. Children, you don't probably understand what that is. It's a, it's a bowl made of ceramic. And it's got a, a little tool that goes in it. And you put things in there and you grind it up to powder. The, the pharmacists used to use them. I don't think they use them anymore. Maybe they do. Maybe your moms use them in, in, the, in the kitchen to, to grind grain or grind uh, maybe uh, peppercorns or things into powder to make them more easily consumed. But God grinds into powder those whom He falls on in His judgment. Again, the stone referenced here is the cornerstone of the church, none other than Jesus Christ our Savior. But what's this have to do with Proverbs 31 and Psalm 127? Let me draw our attentions back there, and I think you'll come to see the importance of this. But remember, the key concept here is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. In Proverbs 31, we see several emphases in this passage from Solomon's recounting of what was likely a a discussion uh, made by his mother to himself. Four things I want to draw to our attention. In verses 12-15 through of Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman does not... She's not idle, but she's hardworking. Rising early in the morning and producing food for her household. By the way, this is contrasted at the beginning of the, the, the uh, Proverbs 31 where uh, the king's mother is calling him to not, not go after women who are not virtuous, but to pursue one that is virtuous. That's the whole point of this. And so he's contrasting the unvirtuous woman with the virtuous woman. She's not idle, but hardworking, beginning in verse 12. 
and reading through verse 15, she rises early in the morning and produces food for her household. She is likened, listen to this, to a merchant ship coming from afar, filled to the brim with good things for her household. She's a merchant ship filled with good things for her household. This is how she comes into the household to provide for them. And not just for her family, not just for for her husband and her children, but for her maidservants as well. Anybody that's in that household is to receive the blessing of this woman's handiwork. She is going to feed them all. She is open-handed. She she doesn't she's not she's not her fists aren't clenched as if to hold something away from people, but rather they are quite open. Quite open. In verses 16 through 18, she is forward thinking and acting. She buys a field for what purpose? To plant vineyards. Well, brethren, vineyards take many years to cultivate. They don't produce right away. This is something that's going to happen long down the road. But she doesn't fear time. Time's on her side. Time's not an enemy to her. It's a friend. Why? Because that vineyard is going to grow grapes that are going to be turned into wine one day and be a profound blessing to to that household that she's cultivating. Time's not an enemy to the Christian. Time's our friend. Eternity is our hope, is it not? Indeed. And Jesus makes that eternity a promised blissful eternity. Not one filled with with trials and tribulations, though we're going through those now. And we will in the church militant, but one day we'll join the church triumphant. And our works and labors will be far more like this. It won't be anything for us to think that we would plant a vineyard that we may not be blessed by for centuries. We have eternity ahead of us. Why not... Why not look upon time as our friend and not our enemy, as she does? She's not dismayed by it. She sees that such activity will benefit her household for years to come. And then in verses 19-25, through she clothes her family, her servants, and even the neighbors in sackcloth. Right? Sackcloth. Isn't that what it says? No. It's not sackcloth. She produces fine linen and sashes, some of which are colored with purple, a very precious dye in the ancient world. Aesthetics mean something to this woman. And as Christians, it should mean something to us as well. We should not just be pragmatic about our lives, utilitarians to the core. No. And that's the temptation. When God had... When God had Moses build the temple or build the tabernacle, think of how he adorned the thing. Think of the beauty that was there. Much of it was overlaid with gold. Now, they had lots of gold when they came out of Egypt. They had, lot, they had plenty of gold. Gold was not... And, and, and in the Bible, someday, that's going to be the pavement on the roads that we live on. Do you ever think about that? In the book of Revelation, gold will be pavement, not asphalt. Gold! That's how God looks upon His creation and wants us to enjoy it. It is going to be aesthetically beautiful. 
And that is the thing that we should be striving for even now. And she is doing that. Purple is the color of royalty. And her linens are colored in purple. Verses 25 and 26 speak of her demeanor. And this is something we all need to take close note of. She rejoices and shares the wisdom of her ways. Now it's evident that this woman is a studious woman as well. If she rises in the morning and the the lamp does not go out at night, this woman spends time doing things that are beyond just producing food and clothing for her, she and her, her uh, family. I suspect she's a studied woman. She's a bit of a scholar. Because she is sharing the wisdom that she's learned. Where does that come from? Where, where is wisdom derived? In God Himself. And in His revelation. She is advancing the kingdom of God, not just by her hands, but by her words and her actions and her, her example, her demeanor, which is a rejoicing demeanor. Sometimes I wonder about the Reformed faith and we who live in it. Where is our joy? You know, we're, we, are, we are really critical people. I mean, we parse every word and every thought and every... There's some purpose behind that. Don't get me wrong. That's important. But if we do it as curmudgeons, if we do it as, as uh, uh, complainers, uh, we draw down the people of God. We don't build them up, which the Scriptures teach us to do. I read some interesting quotes about Chesterton this past week in his book, Orthodoxy. None, the exact wording don't come to mind, so I'll not share it. But for... Uh, for the curmudgeon, everything's upside down and wrong, right? But for those who rejoice in the Lord, even in times of trial, we see God's handiwork to our benefit. Well, brethren, if this is what a virtuous woman looks like, is this woman supposed to be a woman given to life and the pursuits of life? Or is she to be a warrior? Now, I am contrasting the two here. I'm, I'm drawing clear distinctions between them. And we, in some respects, we have to do that. But I also want us to turn our attention to Psalm 127. Because here we see these two concepts coming together in a very profound way. Psalm 127 is talking about the building of a house. Okay? So you would think there would be references to the chief cornerstone, plumb lines, straight edges, uh, you know, roofing materials and walls and that kind of thing. Well, that's one way to build a house. And even as I'll share with you during communion, as we read from Second Peter or First Peter chapter two, we have that kind of structure in mind as well in, in the kingdom of God. But that's not the house that the psalmist is speaking of in this passage. Every house that is blessed by God is built by God. What I mean by this is that God is a builder. He built the creation. He built the Garden of Eden. He designs things and builds them. He built a hierarchy in creation, designing every creature for purposes for which they were created. 
We, as image bearers, are likewise to build things that mimic his designs and purposes. So unless we uh, keep this image bearer motif in mind, God's plans and purposes will not be built, and we would labor in vain to build whatever we build if we do it outside of God's designs. Now, we must not lose sight of the two great destroyers of all building in God's created order. There are two great ones. The first, Satan, the deceiver, is out to destroy all that God has designed for our good and his own glory. Satan is the leader of all who would envy the goodness of God. And envy is worse than covetousness. Covetousness desires that which another possesses. But envy, he says, if I can't have what you have, then I will do all that's in my power to keep you from having it and keeping everybody else from having it. That's the nature of envy. Thus, Satan wants to destroy what is being built for the glory of God. He envies God. He doesn't want God to have it, and he doesn't want we who name the name of God to have it either. And since he can't touch the Creator, we become the targets. That's why Paul tells us about the, the, the armor of God. We're to put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. We're to have the shield of faith. And what's that shield do? It quenches the fiery darts of the evil one. They're coming. We're supposed to bear that shield. There is another great destroyer. His name is Yahweh. He is all about destroying the house of Satan. That's what he's all about. His name speaks to that. He has many names in the Old Testament. But one of them is Destroyer. Remember the great covenant God has made with his son when Jesus ascended to heaven to sit at God's right hand. We know the terms of that covenant. It's reiterated for us in Psalm 110, verse 1. That covenant promise says, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what God said to His Son. So even in judgment, God the Father is creating something beneficial in the destruction of Satan's kingdom or house. Have you ever thought of it this way? God the Father is making a footstool for His Son out of the shattered pieces of Satan's house. God is raising Satan's house, not, not raising it up. He's raising it. as he, He's tearing it down. He's obliterating it. And out of the rubble that's laying around, He's going to build a footstool for His Son's feet. What a glorious God. Even the remnants of Satan's house can be used for the Son's glory. And we're part of that rubble, aren't we? We're traitors to Satan, but we're servants of the living God. So now let us consider the house described in Psalm 127. It's likened not to a palace or a chateau or even a bungalow. It is likened to a full quiver of arrows. Really? <laughs> Seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? Wait a minute. He's talking about building a house and now he's talking about a quiver of arrows? 
We must not lose sight of the fact that these arrows are a blessing from God and God's gift to both the father and mother of that house. God's not talking about the structure. He's talking about the inhabitants when he builds the house in Psalm 127. He's talking about who lives there. Though God Himself is described throughout the Scriptures as a fortress and a high tower, a structure, here in Psalm 127, God is emphasizing the inhabitants of the house and His emphasis is on a tool or a weapon. Both descriptions are appropriate here. An arrow is a tool for gathering food, but when necessary, can be turned into a weapon of warfare. We saw another dual-purpose tool just a few weeks ago when we considered Deborah and Barak and their warfare against the enemies of God. Now remember Barak. He was that really courageous general for the people of Israel who wouldn't go to battle unless Deborah went with him. He was timid at best. And because of his timidity, God would not give him the glory of the victory over the Canaanites. But that glory was given to a woman named Jael. Do you remember her? She was home in her tent, doing the work of a virtuous woman. When lo and behold, the general of the Canaanite army, Sisera, comes to her threshold of the tent and asks for asylum there while his enemies were pursuing him. She knew she was outmatched by this warrior. If she were to do battle with him right away, she would have lost, even though he was very tired and seeking a place to sleep. She knew she was outmatched, but she allowed him to enter anyway, fainting complicity to his cause. It it appeared that she was going to protect him. And he said to her, now, if they come looking for me, tell them that he's not here and send them on their way. There's no indication that she pushed back against this request. None whatsoever. He, in fact, he took some comfort in the fact that she let him in. He fell asleep. He let down his guard. And when, she, when he let down his guard, she took a tool, a tent peg, and drove it through his temple and pinned his te- head to the ground. These aren't, these aren't like the little six-inch tent pegs we have in tents now. These were long things. Because they held up a big tent. She took a tent peg and threw it through, drove it through his temple and pinned his head to the ground. That's a very dramatic picture, is it not? But she took a common everyday tool and used it in the warfare of the living God. God brought the enemy to her door. She did not go to battle with Barak. She didn't go out with the army to fight the Canaanites in the valley. No, she stayed home to do the work God had called her to do with faithfulness. And when the battle came to her, she acted in faithfulness. Similarly, we saw last week, God describes for us those who would populate the armies of the economy of God. We looked at Numbers chapter 1 and Deuteronomy 20. Those armies are to be populated by men and not women, 
and not even all men. Only some are suitable for warfare according to God's design. We are to be a champion of those definitions. We are to promote that kind of righteousness. And this brings us to our application. Brethren, there is a great conflict in which we are engaged. It is warfare. The kingdom of God is warring against the kingdom of Satan. And our Lord and Savior Jesus has assured us the victory by rendering impotent Satan's two great weapons, sin and death. There is work yet to be done. Skirmishes are still taking place and casualties, unfortunately, will occur. It's time for us to recognize that for some of those casualties may be from among us. Yet each of us has a role to play and God very clearly teaches who and where we are to play our roles. He has designed us for those roles and His blessings reside on those who faithfully fulfill those roles. So men, you are to be combatants. This is by the design of God. Unfortunately, our first father failed in that design. And so we fail with him in large measure. Yet, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came as a victor in the face of death. What looked like a great tragedy was our salvation. His death on the cross. And when He rose that third day, all creation says, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Because it was made impotent. So men, let's not be like Adam or Barak and, and, and cringe in the face of the enemy. Be timid about our warfare. I call you to look to the examples of David before Goliath. Nathan. Jonathan. Jonathan in particular. His great friend. David's great friend. Who took his sword bearer with him and just the two of them took on the enemy. And he vanquished them. But of course, the greatest example is Jesus Christ Himself. Who did the will of the Father to the very end, even though it cost him his life. He had nothing to fear. He knew that should his life be taken from him, he would raise it up again. He lived in that promise. We too are to live in the promise of our resurrection. Ladies, according to Psalm 127, you have a part to play in the house as well. You have a virtuous part. You're to bear fruit. We need arrows. We're going to need a lot of them. You're the ones who bear the arrows for the kingdom. You're the ones who raise up our children. And just as Mary raised up Christ in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and He 
the Bible says, grew strong, was, waxed strong, and was filled with the Spirit. I'm not sure what that waxing means there, but it's significant, otherwise it wouldn't have been mentioned. Maybe someday that'll be another sermon. But Jesus Christ is the penultimate arrow in the quiver. He's the, he's the example. We need a lot of arrows. And you have a very important job in the kingdom. Raise up the arrows that we need to fight the battles of the kingdom. Equip the kingdom with a quiver filled with faithful arrows and patiently wait for God the Father to complete the construction of the footstool for the feet of His Son. Let us pray together.